I'm Frank Rossi. And from TurfNet Radio, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode is Steve Mona, the CEO of the World Golf Foundation since 2008. I knew Steve when he was the CEO of the GCSA, the Golf Superintendents Association of America, for 17 years from 1993 to 207. Of course, he did some short stints at some very powerful golf organizations that I'm sure many people have heard of, the Northern California Golf Association, the USGA, and the Georgia Golf Association, which is where he came from uh, just prior to joining the GCSA. Now, during this time, one could argue, and I would, I had a front row seat, that the GCSA experienced a renaissance under Steve's leadership as an organization. But more importantly, I think Steve and Joe O'Brien, for a short period of time, was able to get a seat at the golf industry table. I think that was a table that superintendents needed to sit at for a long time. The professionalism and stature and credibility of the position grew under Steve's leadership. And I think he was very effective in leading that organization to get a seat at that table. Now, over the last decade with the World Golf Foundation, Steve's led a number of initiatives for the golf industry, uh, Golf 2020, We Are Golf, the first T program, of course, the Hall of Fame, all designed to grow interest in the game. Of course, we're going to get to the metrics with Steve regarding economic impact and, you know, one out of every 75 jobs impacted by the golf industry and $70 billion of economic impact on product and services. And of course, increasing participation, growing player interest that leads to uh, testing out the game and then ultimately the industry's ability to retain those players. And of course, the first T program. Uh, and many of the initiatives with millennials and women uh, is leading that effort. Effort. So before we get started, a big hearty thanks to you, Steve, for all you've done for the uh, Greengrass channel, as we oftentimes uh, get referred to uh, in the industry of golf. But most importantly, your work with the golf superintendents over the years. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Steve. Thanks, Frank. It's great to be with you. And I certainly look back uh, on those years uh, with GCSA with a lot of fondness and a lot of pride and things we were able to do with uh, such a great membership. So uh, those were great times. And you were uh, very effective at it. And I have to say, from uh, the seat I had, which, as I mentioned, was a pretty front row seat to what was going on, there was a lot of excitement, the level of professionalism and and, and just just sort of attitude and morale of the entire industry, I think, uh, grew in those years. Now, of course, it, it's no, it, you know, at the same time, golf was very healthy, right, Steve? Back in that time was the golf boom when, you know, we were building a golf course every day, uh, the demand, uh, the university programs grew dramatically. So well, I guess let's start there. H- how would you say back then the growth of golf, which now we're at the other end of that to a certain extent, extent excited about you know Mike uh, small improvements back then we were growing in leaps and bounds right yeah absolutely we uh, were certainly the beneficiary of uh, a significantly strong economy and that definitely manifested itself uh, in golf without question and that was a time where the rising tide was raising all boats I like to think that we at GCSA uh, got more than our fair share of growth during that time but still uh, we were the beneficiary of so many other positive indicators that were going on generally in our economy and in our culture. That is correct. But I I think you can be humble about it. But the fact is, 
when you saw it happening, you were positioning the organization properly to take advantages of the strides that were occurring. And of course, we all know, in addition to the sort of projections that we were getting from the National Golf Foundation that, you know, we needed to build a golf course a day, I think a guy we both know as Tiger Woods was, uh, you know, sort of starting to emerge on the scene. I remember uh, in the mid-90s, I went to the Masters and it was uh, Tiger's last time he played as an amateur. I think he was in Stanford at the time. And so let's talk about that because obviously now, uh, he is looking like he's returning to form. I think the people who pay attention to golf, uh, sort of numbers and just his swing, the, the sort of yogi uh, urism about uh, uh, the way we swing. He looks like he's swinging without pain. How has Tiger impacted this whole thing? Well, I'll put it to you this way. There are two people in the history of the game who have been transcendent uh, in terms of their both ability, but then just their general aura uh, in in terms of what that's meant to the growth of golf. And those two people are Arnold Palmer, the late Arnold Palmer, and uh, Tiger Woods. And in the case of Tiger, we're obviously seeing a bit of a renaissance right now. Uh, if you go back, and you, you were right in talking about when Tiger burst on the scene, when he won the Masters, and then that started a really a run of dominance, the likes of which we've never really seen in golf. And that's with all due respect to Jack Nicklaus, who I would still say is the greatest of all time. But Tiger was the best for for that period of time, about 10 years or so, 10, 12 years. Uh, and so we're seeing that come back now today. And you've seen over the last few weeks when he's played at, um, when he played at the Honda Classic a few weeks ago, they had record attendance. Their ratings on the weekend were up 40% over the year before. And you saw last week in Tampa at the Valspar Championship, same thing. I mean, the best ratings of any non-major since the 2013 players, which, by the way, Tiger won that as well. And then, uh, obviously, yesterday, uh, getting off to a great start at Bay Hill. We'll see how it plays out these next three days. But uh, if he stays in contention, I think you can look for the same kind of uh, ratings this weekend. That's right. And, and, he, and it, it's interesting because you describe them as transcendent. And, and I, I'm very pleased that sort of our minds were alike about that. I would have said the exact same two people. And you're right to clarify as well. Jack Nicholas, of course, by the numbers would be a better uh, would have been considered more, you know, uh, accomplished just simply by the numbers. But when you transcend something, right, you think about the Arnie days, he was sort of making golf cool, the cardigan sweater, smoking cigarettes, you know, sort of very, uh, uh, instead of being separated from the crowd, very much wanting to be part of Arnie's army. Um, and you see Tiger Woods uh, very much the same way, impacting beyond just the game itself, but the entire industry. So obviously the industry benefits as a whole. But one of the questions is, Steve, how much does that translate to the green grass channel? And that's an excellent question. And, and basically, here's the way I describe it. What Tiger does is he creates interest in the game. Um, but that interest has to be converted. And so uh, he certainly creates uh, a tremendous upswing with respect to TV ratings. We've talked about that. He does the same for attendance at PGA Tour events. We've talked about that or wherever he plays. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is, so you create that interest. People take on a bit of a different attitude about golf. They say, well, maybe this might be a game for me because this athlete plays it and I identify so closely with him for whatever reason. 
Um, so that that creates an opportunity for us, but we have to capitalize on it. So, so it doesn't necessarily translate into increased participation unless golf can make that connection. And so how do you do that? Well, first of all, you have to have accessible facilities that are welcoming to people from all walks of life. And then once you get them out there, you have to give them an experience that they find to be fun. And then the other piece, and this is the real challenge, is you have to get them to a point where they feel that they're becoming competent at the game. And that's that's really the rub there, because as we know, and the way I put it, golf is not a difficult game to play. Pretty much anyone <laughs> can play golf, but it's a difficult game to play well and and play up to your expectations. And so that's the rub. Yeah. So um, that's really the challenge. But he creates great opportunity for the golf industry, but it, it, it doesn't come automatically. You have to convert on it. So, so we're already into some of the key notes that I wrote down uh, in preparation for chatting with you, Steve. We're, we're really getting to it. I have a bunch of questions that I want to get through. But, but that uh, conversion, right, that what taking the interest that Tiger creates, that he looks like an athlete. You know, as opposed to maybe uh, maybe some of the people that play golf that don't necessarily look athletic. So so he creates that interest. Now, you know, it sounds like an easy thing, right? Accessible facilities and create a good experience. But I think we struggled with that. And you see it happening still. Right, Steve? I mean, there are some places where women don't feel as welcome as they should. There are some places where if you're not really good, you know, the course is very intimidating. It, it's too long. It's too hard. You know, and then they put two balls out in the fairway and say, play from here. And it just doesn't have the same feel. So you're sitting there uh, in a position where, you know, obviously you're involved with many initiatives. What are we telling operators and clubs to work on with their accessibility? Well, there are several things. And first of all, the premises that you just laid out, I think, historically have been true, and certainly at certain facilities. Uh, But I would maintain that we are moving away from that today. And you're seeing course operators, whether they be management companies, and management companies have around 13%, plus or minus of the golf courses today are managed by management companies, or single facility operators, or private clubs that are that are member-owned and run, you are seeing today a much greater recognition that golf needs to look like America looks and needs to be welcoming to that more broad demographic. And so what does that mean? Well, in practical terms, so what that means is how is it how easy is it to interface with the the golf facility? And I mean, from the the minute you drive up there, see one thing. Just for example, not everyone intuitively knows what you do at a bag drop. If you've never been around golf, that's really a foreign language to you. People don't necessarily know uh, how to even operate a golf cart. That's right. And I think one of the cohorts that you're trying to appeal to seems to be millennials, for example, accessibility for them. And unlike, you know, maybe women and minorities, which, of course, could always also be millennials, a millennial wants to be able to say, hey, I want to go play golf. Let me go on my phone. Oh, look, I can play in these places. And oh, look at the ratings and things on these places. I got to believe the sort of integration of golf into the smartphone world and into the online reservation world has has got to be one of the things the industry has to do better from an accessibility perspective, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no question about it. And so, for instance, to that point, we have a millennial task force 
that's been working for several years, much like we have a diversity task force and a women's task force that are focused on those particular groups. But back with respect to millennials, and you asked about operators a minute ago, we have now put on essentially webinars for operators to talk about what millennials are looking for, what they consider to be uh, a suitable experience, and how they're used to interfacing with different purveyors of leisure time, if you will. And so what I maintain is that, and anyone for this matter, but you have to be able to interface with golf the same way you would with a dinner reservation or going to a concert or going to a baseball game. It has to be just as seamless uh, for uh, not only the millennials, but any group for that matter. And so, therefore, we're trying to make sure that our operators understand that this is the the norm now. This is basically the ante into the game. Listen, Steve, we're going to wrap up this segment. I'm going to get you out of here on this question before we go to a message from our sponsors. And it and it is continued about uh, accessibility and, and changing per- perceptions. Um, there was that study that I mentioned earlier that you have on your website. We're actually watching golf. Uh, you know, if you're, you know, following how many steps you take, you can, it's like a four to six mile walk. And of course, many years ago, to the University of Stockholm in Sweden did a study of, uh, you know, longevity and life, uh, life quality of life in Sweden and found that, you know, generally people who participated in golf uh, in Scandinavia, you know, lived a little bit longer, were a little bit healthier. But one of the perceptions we have and one of the accessibility issues we challenge is, you know, if golf's going to be an athletic activity, we have a lot of sort of driving around in golf carts, right? Um, it, I don't know that it's viewed the same way. Obviously, we want to make it so you can play it for a very long time, but we're much more of a cart golf country here than we are a walking golf country. Can you give me just a couple of minutes on uh, accessibility from that perspective? Sure. So, One thing that we've been focused on over the last several years is to communicate the health benefits of golf. And so we commissioned uh, a study that was led by the chief medical officer of the uh, PGA uh, European Tour and a uh, researcher out of the University of Edinburgh in Scotland um, who spent now the last several years working on this. And what we found are several things. You mentioned the... um, health benefits of spectating. And golf, if you think about it, is one of the few sports, maybe the only, um, where you actually can get exercise spectating. And most people uh, do, in fact, do that during the course of their however many hours they're out the golf course. They're generally walking around, maybe following one group or several groups. Sure, some will sit in the grandstands, but for the most part, people are walking around. So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is you mentioned carts. And sure, uh, walking 18 holes and carrying your bag is going to create the most exercise, followed by doing the same thing with a pull pull cart or push cart, followed by doing the same thing with a caddy. But even if you're riding a cart, you'd be surprised how many steps you actually do take and the the physical activity associated with swinging a club and taking practice swings, et cetera. So um, our view is that we need to do a much better job of helping people understand that golf is an athletic pursuit and that there are certain health benefits that inure to an individual as a result of playing golf or spectating um, at a golf event. And that's the whole idea behind uh, this project that we've undertaken. 
What a thrill to have Steve Mona here, the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, and I'm happy to call a, a close acquaintance, even a friend, over the last bunch of years. This is Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be back with Steve in a minute. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network, joined by my pal Steve Mona, the CEO of the World Golf Foundation. And Steve, when we left off, we were talking about that conversion, right? What's involved in converting that effect that Tiger can create? Or, or any positive experience can create, uh, like the Olympics uh, did in other parts of the world. Now we're to the experience part. Now, we sort of ventured into it a little bit, the experience of walking versus riding. But as you said, and I say to my, my daughter when she was younger, when she was trying to go to voice lessons, and, and she's, her friends would say, well, you know, I can sing. Uh, and I don't take voice license. And I said exactly what you said. Everybody can sing. Not everybody can sing well. So it's just like playing golf. They play golf, but it's hard to play well. So it's a hard game. And I want your comments on, do we really have the kinds of golf courses that we need to grow the game from a design and conditioning perspective? Uh, you know, you step on a Robert Trent Jones golf course, um, or, or even his sons as well, you know, very penal in their design. Uh, the, the classic Donald Ross top shot bunker, you know, at Gulf, at Gulf Mills over there in, in Pennsylvania. So how do you reconcile the experience that we want them to have a positive experience, that they need some level of competency, but the courses are really hard to play? So there's been a recognition of that, certainly, Frank, over the last several years, that there was a period of time where the designs tended to be uh, focused on difficulty, as you pointed out, and there was almost, it was almost a badge of honor um, how high your slope rating was, for instance. But, but again, that's changed dramatically over the last decade or so uh, for, for a number of reasons, and now what you're seeing is golf courses that feature and emphasize playability. So how do you do that when you have a golf course that's been designed one way, let's say, uh, and you're not going to go in and bulldoze it and start over, uh, but you've got to create a more, shall I say, uh, a, quote, accessible experience, if you will. So one way that operators have done that uh, is through, and this is where the superintendent comes in, by the way, um, how the course is set up. So several years ago, uh, a concept was promulgated that continues today, um, uh, called tee it forward, where you, you move up a set of tees and you set the tees in a place where uh, people really realistically ought to be playing from anyway. <laughs> that's right. And, it, and so that's one thing. So what does that do? Well, it generally does three things. It generally 
speeds up play. It generally lowers your score, um, and it generally uh, adds to the enjoyment of the game for those first two reasons. Uh, so that's one thing. Second, um, and this is really where the superintendent comes in, um, and that is uh, how the course is set up from the standpoint of hole locations, um, the height of the rough, the width of the rough, all those sorts of things that can certainly influence uh, one's enjoyment of the game um, and also one's score. Um, so there's there's a much greater recognition now that um, the course itself has to contribute to the experience and that people have a lot of choices with their discretionary dollar. And if we're going to help uh, attract our fair share to golf, then the experience itself is going to have to be fun at the end of the day. And that also extends to, I might add, um, some of the rules at courses. So um, do you allow, for instance, um, people, and it's not just millennials, but people to wear cargo shorts? And do you let them uh, have their shirt untucked? And can they have their hat on backwards? And can they play music in their cart? Those are all things that a lot of people would consider uh, normal in a lot of context. And so I'm not here to say that all 15,000 on the golf, cor- golf courses in the United States need to do just that, but a vast majority do in my judgment because it's expected. That's right. And just like you said, that, that the design of these courses, uh, the harder it was, and of course superintendents like that as well, right? They want fast greens. Uh, they want the place to play hard. Uh, but I think just like it's a badge of honor, when you tell someone to move forward, they've been playing a certain way for a while. Maybe to new players, we have to introduce them to that. And and that brings up an interesting point. Now, I've had the pleasure of traveling uh, through Sweden, uh, Gunnar Hawkinson, the general secretary of the Swedish Golf Foundation. Many of the folks in that organization have hosted me many times over the last decade. And the Swedish approach to this is you actually can't really play on a regular golf course unless you get a card. And you learn to play, you set up like a, a six to ten lesson or period of time like you do with skiing or maybe, you know, you, you get a few free uh, times to go. You, you start at 150 yards in and then you move back and you introduce them to the game like that. Do you ever imagine we're going to get to that uh, in the United States where we are able to create a... Uh, uh, a, a sort of class of learners. Have you started to see that catch on? Because I think, you know, that's another way to get women, minorities and millennials is that they could say, Hey, you know, here's six lessons and it progresses, or maybe it's uh, two lessons a week. And I go around with you for a day. Uh, do you see that kind of reaching out happening from the teaching pros? I, I do see that occurring, Frank, um, de facto, uh, organically, um, and I also see it through a program that we actually started here back in uh, 2009, and it's called Get Golf Ready. And Get Golf Ready is a program designed to bring adults into the game in a fast, fun, and affordable manner. And not to get too much into the weeds, but it essentially here's the program. It's six lessons. They're in groups, but of no more than eight. And they include three things that um, generally, uh, two of which you generally don't see. One is they include a, for lack of a better term, a briefing on some of the conventions of the game that people don't intuitively 
uh, know or understand who have never played the game before. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. So how do I interface once I show up here? What do I do when I'm on the golf course? Uh, things like that that are not necessarily related to the striking of a golf ball, but just interfacing with the game. So that's one piece. Another piece is uh, in every case you have an on-course experience. So you go out onto the course and you play a hole or you, you play a few holes and you get a an experience that you don't otherwise get. And then the third thing I think that makes this unique and effective is uh, golf is taught from the hole backward in this in Get Golf Ready, meaning your first lesson is on the green and only on the green. And if you think about it, you're probably going to experience some kind of success. You might make a 10-foot putt and you go home and you tell your spouse, you know, maybe golf isn't as hard as I thought it was. And then you, you work backwards, and it's not until your third or fourth lesson that you're actually uh, striking full shots. So I think that makes it unique. We've had um, over the 10 years now that we've had the program, about um, 750,000 people have gone through it with about a 80% retention rate after one year. It declines after four or five years, but just to 60%. So um, and it skews very heavily uh, female, 66%, and skews uh, more uh, heavily minority, about 30%. Um, than the industry generally. So we think there's some promise with that program. Well, and of course, we've really been talking primarily about uh, golf in the United States. But as I've heard you mention in other forums that uh, one of the things the Olympics was able to do was to get us some really good coverage, uh, particularly of the men's final. uh, And that seems to have translated into some growth uh, in other parts of the world. And this is uh, very current for me. I just got back from a, a quick trip to Thailand. I'm working on grassing a golf course over there with Gil Hans and Jim Wagner again uh, from our, the teams back together from the Olympic golf course. And the the amount of play that's occurring on these tie golf courses, uh, particularly, you know, at the end of the dry season now, a lot of people trying to get rounds in. They're obviously taking up golf in, in droves internationally. Uh, can you speak for a minute about the growth of golf uh, internationally? Because obviously, you know, you're based in Florida, but you're really working, I'm assuming, with all your partners in the International Golf Foundation to, to grow the game internationally. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, we're working on a global scale uh, with partner organizations like ours uh, around the globe. So a few comments on, on what we're seeing globally. I mean, you mentioned the Olympics, and and that really was the main driver behind the push that golf made to become part of the Olympics. It wasn't so much to create another competition for the elite golfers um, of the world, many of whom were already playing very full schedules. Um, That's part of it, but it was more about the growth of the game worldwide because, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Frank, but um, if you become an Olympic sport, um, you first of all, create a uh, essentially an organization in each country that relates uh, formally with the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. Uh, so essentially it's a governing body for that sport in that country. And part of the charge of that governing body, um, it's really twofold. One is to create elite athletes who can then compete at the Olympic level. But secondly, and I would argue more importantly, to help create grassroots programs to introduce people to that sport in that country. Now, in countries like the U.S. and other developed countries, do we need uh, additional growth of the game programs? Not really. I mean, our, our main uh, challenge here is just coordinating all the, um, the different programs. But in a lot of countries where golf has not been part of the culture traditionally, uh, 
that is very important, the, the creation of grassroots programs. So our view is we will see, and it'll be generational, it will take that long, but we will see golf as a participant sport grow in countries where it really hasn't been part of the culture. And part of that obviously relates to the economics of that country, because if you look at golf generally, globally, where it's grown uh, generally over time has been in areas where that middle class of that country has grown, and that certainly was true in the United States. So part of that relates to that piece. But generally speaking, uh, where you are able to put funds behind the creation of programs to introduce people to the game, it will grow. And then the Olympics also will create that aspirational element where people will see athletes from their own country, who look like them, by the way, um, compete favorably on the, that world stage, and they'll want to emulate that. And, of course, every time they turn on uh, the television watching uh, golf uh, professionally, uh, the diversity of players, particularly when, you know, the World Golf Foundation, um, I'm sorry, the World Golf Championships come around. And of course, the excitement around the Ryder Cup uh, has certainly uh got a lot of more lot more uh, interest from an international perspective and i think appreciation from americans um that how to appreciate international players right i think we at least on the men's side have accepted it uh, exceptionally well and i um again steve we're going to go to our next break but i want to ask you on another sort of peripheral aspect and it's really outside the green grass channel and that is the emergence of these virtual experiences like top golf right uh, looks like Callaway got involved in top for with in top golf in a big way. That looks like a growth, um, you know, sort of venture. You're seeing them pop up all over the place. Now, I have to say, I'm a little bit biased that it looks a lot more like bowling to me than it does to golf. And as the guy uh, in the Green Grass Channel. I'm very curious about if you know of the conversion rate. Are we having any success? You know, we we, we are getting more conversion with accessibility and improving the experience. We are getting uh, a lot of new interest internationally. How are these virtual experiences, which, you know, whether it's golf or not is a different story, but but it, it looks like golf. It's a regulation club and a regulation ball. Is that converting people to the green grass channel? Well, it's much like the conversation we had about Tiger a few minutes ago, and that is it's creating interest, uh, and our challenge is conversion. And so let me speak specifically because we've been working with Topgolf for about the last five years. Um, there's no question that putting a golf club, a regulation golf club, in someone's hand and letting them swing at it and hit a regulation golf ball and get some feedback on the shot like you do at a Topgolf, i.e., did you hit the target or didn't you, um, and doing it in a fun, relaxed environment um, is positive for the game. There's, there's no arguing against that. The, the issue is, so can you bring people who find uh, a like or maybe a love for the game through a uh, golf type experience uh, to the, quote, traditional game? There is evidence that that's occurring. I don't have empirical data. I have plenty of anecdotal evidence of that. But we're working very closely with Top Golf to uh, ensure uh, that their patrons are who show an interest uh, in the game are aware of the entry points to the game. I.e., s- several of these um, player development initiatives we talked about get golf ready a few minutes ago. So whether it's a Top Golf experience, whether it's a simulator experience, and that's more prevalent in South Korea as you probably know. Mm-hmm. But we do have that. Uh, 
uh, same kind of experience here in the United States. Um, or even the third area are driving ranges. Um, people, there are about 4 million people on a national level who only experience golf at a driving range and not on a regulation course. So the whole issue there is how do you move people from that experience to the, quote, traditional green grass experience, and that's where there's a tremendous amount of emphasis. And like I said, anecdotally, we know that there's conversion. We just don't have, I don't have hard data to say 10% or 20% are converting, uh, but we know that that's happening, and we are very much focused on making that happen. Steve Mona from the World Golf Foundation, the CEO of the World Golf Foundation, is with me on Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. I'll be back with Steve in a minute. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm joined today by Steve Mona, the CEO of the World Golf Foundation. And I've had the joy of knowing Steve. Gosh, it's 24, 25 years now uh, we've known each other. We got uh, to know each other a little bit in your early years when we were looking at uh, maybe moving down to Lawrence and joining the team down there. And I have to say it was a lot because of what I saw, the the good work that you were doing. And I, I can really hear in the conversation we've been having, Steve, that that good work has continued uh, in a variety of different ways. And I want to keep uh, focused on on the experience, right? Um, the conversion of people uh, to the game of golf in the Greengrass Channel. Um, the accessibility is one thing, uh, the interest from Tiger or the whole Olympic thing. But as you know, I have great interest in sort of just the natural experience, the experience of being in the outdoors, of, uh, of appreciating green space, uh, particularly from my background as a, as a sort of a kid growing up in New York City. Uh, the golf course was a place I could chase a lawnmower around and, and be out in the open air. So I, I came to golf in a, in a very different way uh, than people who come to golf to play it. But let me get your opinion. It's obviously a part of your, the World Golf Foundation initiative, the Golf 2020 initiative, uh, that, that environmental stewardship and uh, creating golf courses that are environmentally responsible is something that might appeal to people about golf. Can you give me your perspective on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is what makes golf so unique is the fact that the experience and the playing field is central to the experience. And think about it. How many people go travel to Scotland to play on a tennis court or on a bowling alley? But how many people will do that to play golf? And the reason that they're doing it is the course itself and the experience that it creates, whether it's hard by the North Sea or if it's hard by the Pacific Ocean, whatever the case might be. Uh, that is a big, big part of, of golf. And I would also maintain then the experience that one has with the group with whom he or she is playing obviously has a tremendous influence on 
enjoyment of the game. But at its core, it's being outdoors uh, in a setting that you don't normally uh, experience during the course of the week. And that is really central to to why you're out there in the first place. And if you look at when those polls are done uh, in terms of what gives people the most satisfaction with a round of golf, it's generally just what we talked about. It's almost always the the overall experience, and then it's generally followed by the people with whom you played, and how you played is further down the list. And, of course, the perception of golf uh, the you know the green grass aspect of golf uh, requires uh, water use and again from a millennial perspective this is something that I've noticed at, you know particularly with the interest in the the area that I've been working in for 27 years has has seemed to, to ticked up in the last several years and I believe it's because younger generations are looking for transparency around things they they like data and they're looking for transparency and and when they go to play golf there's a sense that they want to know how much water that golf course is using in particular with regard to water. Where are we going to go as an industry uh, trying to, um, you know, make it accessible and interesting and converting these people and justifying the use of this uh, renewable, you know, of, of, of this uh, precious resource water? Yeah, I think you're already seeing that. I think, uh, for instance, I know the GCSA has been at this for a number of years, um, through the the project that measures what is going on uh, at the golf course, whether yeah, it's the environmental the, profiles exactly right, and so um, and I know that's on its second go round now, and so we're seeing what the progress is over one one period of yeah. time versus another. But I do agree with your premise that uh, consumers are looking f- for tremendous transparency, and particularly as it relates to golf courses, which have had a perception of being over-managed uh, at times. I would maintain that's not the case anymore, but, um, but that's a perception that we have to deal with. And so putting out data that shows what's actually going on at a golf course, I think is important. Do you think golfers will make a decision between course A and course B? Uh, maybe you might separate out the sectors where this might be important. But if you have a, um, you know, a recognized golf course like a Audubon Inter- uh, Cooperative Sanctuary or a, a GEO uh, thing or, or some form of environmental excellence like a, a third-party verification that that golf course is, is maintained to a higher standard, I think historically what we've struggled with is is that that's not been something that's been appealing to golfers? Do you see that changing? Well, again, I think it. I think yeah, the answer is yes, and I think we're already seeing that occur. I think that um, people are more understanding of the first of all uh, the environmental realities of uh, managing a golf course and uh, wh- what that means to its overall conditioning. And then clearly from an economic standpoint, I think there's a greater understanding and recognition of that. And so I I think it it extends across our society generally. I I think people generally are just more aware of how uh, any number of, whether it's a recreational pursuit or otherwise, uh, how that impacts uh, the environment. And now to your question of whether that would influence one's decision uh, it's it's very possible. I don't have any data that suggests that, but 
Um, I think that to the extent uh, a an experience can be made more economical um, and also offer, uh, from an environmental perspective, um, an experience that is environmentally sustainable, that 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 formula ultimately is going to win in the long term. And I think consumers will uh, recognize that. And so the the role of a third-party verifier you think could be expanding? I do. I think so. And I think that golf course superintendents, because as you well know, they've been ahead of the curve on this for years, uh, and they understand uh, the management issues associated with it better, certainly better than the layman does. Um, will embrace that. And so uh, the, the question is, will that become a competitive advantage right. uh, at one course over another? Right. And I think that's ultimately what it'll have to come down to because an, an owner or an operator is going to have to see it on that basis. But but we've already seen that. I mean, you, uh, courses that have made their brand uh, statement based upon their um, their environmental practices. That's right. Well, there's no question. And, and, and part of the transition, you know, as we start to wrap up uh, for this episode, Steve, part of the transition I want to make here at the end is, is the competitiveness in golf. Listen, uh, golf courses have been uh, closing at a pretty rapid rate uh, for the last decade or so, maybe a hundred and some odd and maybe a few being built. Um, they're it still looks very competitive when I travel to different golf markets and I visit with superintendents about a variety of issues or I, I travel and, and, and interact with distributor representatives that service the superintendents with seed and fertilizer and, and uh, pesticides and, and um, uh, equipment, of course. What I see is still a significant amount of competition. I, I was hoping to get exactly the words I got out of you that, you know, uh, dedicate yourself to environmental responsibility and that might give you a competitive advantage. But I guess on the other side, you know, are we done? I mean, are we done shrinking uh, from the growth? I don't want to, we're not going to end on a sour note, I promise you, but do you still see, at least in the States, uh, some contraction ahead? So we've uh, essentially reduced the overall supply of golf courses from uh, a high of north of 16,000 and that was about 10 or so years ago, 10, 11 years ago, uh, to today we're right at about 15,000. And I think we're probably going to end up somewhere in the mid-14,000s before everything uh, begins to settle, so to speak, and then we'll begin to see uh, moderate growth after that. Um, So, But I don't necessarily view that as a negative because um, if you look at it, uh, if you're a golfer now, um, you have probably the best quality offerings available than you've ever had, and you have, from a value standpoint, uh, great value opportunities as well. So I would maintain it's a good time to be a golfer because the, the courses that have remained, generally speaking, are the uh, obviously stronger economically, but also a lot of them have invested uh, in their courses. So, for instance, um, there have been, over the last decade, about a 1,000 golf courses in the United States have done some type of a renovation, and the capital investment has been over a billion dollars. So that's a clear case where the product is improved. So, um, And rounds played have been up two of the last three years, so people have been finding places to play. Right. 
So on that basis, um, that's just part of the, the whole process that golf is going through as an industry right now. It's it's getting to its new state of normal, yep. and it's going to be stronger as a result. I, I, I firmly agree with that, and I would tell you that that those uh, those infrastructure investments, those thousand golf courses spending that billion dollars, you know, those are the critical questions that I see. If you're if you're looking at around fifteen thousand, and you're talking about another, you know, maybe five or six hundred absorbed uh, yet back, that decision is ultimately, I think, going to be driven by uh, these infrastructure investments, uh, irrigation systems. You know, no one wants to take two million dollars and bury it in the ground. So those are tricky to do. Uh, equipment has to be advanced. Um, the product side is really sort of regulating itself. Superintendents are are seeing the economics of driving down a lot of their costs, and we're seeing efficiency parts uh, come to the operations. Uh, the use of equipment tracking devices, the uh, the use of GPS to determine where people are playing, and changing maintenance uh, based on that. All of this uh, is going to wind up to eventually make us stronger, but we're in for at least a little bit for those people at those facilities, uh, some hard decisions ahead. And I guess uh, that's where ultimately, you know, whatever can drive more people into the game might soften this blow a little bit. Final comment on that. Yeah. So again, it goes back to what we've talked about twice before, and that is um, golf really does not have a, a, an interest issue in terms of people expressing interest in the game. We didn't talk about this at all, but we have about plus or minus about 25 million people who play the game in this country, but we have another 40 million who have an interest in taking up the game. So the question that we've been dealing with for years is, so how do we convert that interest into trial, i.e., let's get them out there? And then the biggest uh, question is, how do we convert trial to commitment? And that's a, that's a trickier one, but it's out there. The opportunity's out there, and it, the conversion is the big uh, issue and frontier for us. So to the extent we can be successful doing that, then um, we will be strong uh, as an industry going forward. And I and I think we have uh, a lot uh, you to thank for a lot of your leadership, both with the golf course superintendents and now for uh, a decade with the World Golf Foundation. Steve, thanks for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Absolutely, Frank. It's a pleasure to uh, spend this time with you, and uh, it's great to be on your show today. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. And, and for those of you heading to National Golf Day uh, at the end of April 24 or 25, do I have that right, Steve? Do you know? You do. You have it exactly right. Right. So April 24, 25, you can see the man in person uh, in Washington, D.C., doing his thing with the WeAreGolf.org uh, program. Steve is with the World Golf Foundation, the CEO since 2008. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm on the TurfNet radio network you can find us on twitter at turfnet uh facebook and every place else that you exist in the online world these days i'm frank rossi thank you for joining me today on this episode we try to do smart talk and we try to find leading thinkers in these areas and i'm sure we did that again with steve thanks very much for joining us Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. 
computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.